Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. We have been going through now the the book of John in our studies for um, a little over six months since um, March, I believe. And as we mentioned last week, the first 12 chapters of the book are about Jesus's earthly ministry. It is, um, in fact, John showing this first of the purposes of the, the twofold purpose of John, and that is that Jesus truly is the Son of God. Now, he's not going to get in yet the Lamb of God, but he's the Son of God who took on flesh, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and if you remember from the Greek, it's and God was the word. It's a definition of who God is, not necessarily a definition of who the word is. And so God is the word. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. And so John <clears throat> presents the evidence that he presents showing that Jesus declares um, that he is Yahweh incarnate, and that he then reveals it by his his very works of that who he is as well. Last week, then at camp, we began transitioning into um, a, like a five chapter hiatus, if you would, um, where John is now going to share Jesus's not necessarily last will and testament, but his his last statements, the things that he wants his disciples to know before he dies. He's getting ready to die within the next 24 hours. And so, again, he has the opportunity to, to tell them, here's what I want you to, to know. Here's what I want you to be. And so we begin looking in John 13, um, verse 1, and we, where we saw that having loved his own, he loved them to the very end. We'll talk about that a little bit more today. But then he demonstrated that love to them in his servant leadership and so we're told as you see at the bottom of the screen there jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from god and was going to god rose from supper laid aside his garments took a towel and geared it himself and if you remember the whole um context of that is because the disciples were starting to argue on which one of them was the greatest and jesus was setting them an example that actually the greatest is going to be the one who serves them and that he being their master, their Lord, their teacher, um, humbled himself. And what I like about this picture, this bronze statue, is that Jesus is down to nothing than his um, his undergearment. Um, many of the other pictures you show on it, see on it, they have them still robed up. And it's like, if you remember we talked about last week, the, the Bible is very clear that he takes off his outer garment. They would have the the, the, the robe, the hemation or the parabolane that they would wear over top of then that undergarment there. And, um, but he takes that off and he takes the, the towel of the servant um, and wraps that around him. And so um, he didn't, again, as I mentioned last week, his royal vestures, if you would, um, were taken off and he assumed the, the, the lowliest role 
that there could have been in that moment. And that was the door servant, the foot washer. And so he did that for each of them. And so we want to continue um, with that thought today. We want to um, continue in this um, context. And so if you would, if you got your Bibles, turn to John 13. And we're going to read um, the entirety of the chapter today. And then we're going to continue on looking at the context of what's going on in here. Um, so, and I'll talk about that in a moment after we read it. But beginning in verse 1, John 13, we read, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and geared himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe I am, I am. If you remember from that, from John 8, when we were going through the I am, I am passages, this is another one of those where Jesus is declaring, I am Yahweh. So when he's stating there that when Judas does this, you're going you're gonna to know that I am Yahweh. Verse 20, most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus's breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread 
when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things that we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God also will glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. There's a lot going on in that passage. But as Jesus was there in that, that upper room participating um, in that Passover celebration, we encounter in John 13 two special individuals. First of all, we have the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, who, if you remember, participated then in communion. Jesus as well washed his feet. He didn't discriminate against him, but let him participate. But then you have the denier, Peter. And I could actually put a third category here because all the other 10 sitting there, they're deserters. They all left him when he was in the garden. And so every single one of these individuals failed the Lord within the next 24 hours. They all walked away from him. And we like to pick on Judas. But God's word has some pretty strong words about denying the Lord as well. And we're going to look at those today and um, consider it. But this is all juxtaposed with the faithfulness of God. That in the midst of this, Jesus wasn't taken by surprise. It wasn't going to shock God, the Father, that all of a sudden these guys that he gave to Jesus abandoned him and, and run away. But rather, Jesus knew ahead of time and that he warns Peter of it ahead of time. He tells Judas about the whole situation. And so in the midst of this whole thing, we're going to see that God is faithful even when we fail him. And that ought to give us, at least for Bob, it gives me great encouragement and great strength that, again, my salvation is not dependent upon my own righteousness. My salvation is purely based 
in the righteousness of Christ, which God imputed to me when I asked him to be my savior. So we want to begin here with this failure of man and looking at the betrayer, um, Judas Iscariot that we know of. First of all, we look at his decision and we're going to look at some other passages um, that tie into this that again, flesh out the rest of what is happening in John 13. And so beginning here in Luke 22, verse one to six, we read, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. I've got to change my glasses. Different focal point here. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains. Now they, how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Judas was making some decisions. What his motivations were, we're not sure. We'll look at some more passages here. There can be a debate between whether, as a zealot, he was seeking to force Jesus' hand uh, politically to cause Jesus to to rise up and to be the Messiah that many Jews thought he would be and that he would come and he would conquer Rome at this moment, or whether his motive was purely money um, uh, because of the he's going to be getting paid for this. Um, I'll let you debate that in your own brain. That's not for me to, to make a decision on. But he's making a decision regardless of the motives at this point. But note a couple things. Verse 3, Satan entered Judas surnamed Iscariot. Judas, in some manner, opened himself up to Satan's working. He, When we turn away from the will of God, we open ourselves up to somebody else's will. Ephesians chapter 2 um, tells us that um, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, that before we were saved, we walked according to the will of Satan. And that's, that's a hard thing for us to comprehend. People don't want to hear that. But the reality is, again, God's word is clear. There isn't a gray area in the middle. I know, and I'm not picking on the Catholic church, but they teach purgatory and that kind of stuff that in basically it's for the gray area that, you know, maybe you weren't a saint on the earth, but you get a chance to work it out. It's not true. It's not biblical. It's one side or the other. Matthew chapter six, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and mammon or the things that money buys. You can't have two gods. You can't have two masters. You're going to love the one and despise the other. And so you have to make a decision who it is that you are serving. Well, for Judas, it wasn't Jesus. In the end, what he's proving is that regardless of his motivation, his motive wasn't glorifying God and glorifying Christ. And so we're told he went his way, conferred with the chief priests, how he might 
betray him. It was a volitional decision by Judas to betray the Lord. We see in Matthew 26, then a little bit more detail given to us. Then one of the 12, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me? This is, again, then the secondary motive, right? The money side. If I deliver him to you, and they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray, betray him. And then in chapter 27 of Matthew, we read, Then Judas, the betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he, that is Judas, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. <clears throat> Judas's decision, regardless of the motivation, put him in league with Satan. Satan is the destroyer. Satan seeks to divide and to destroy. And so in the end, <clears throat> Judas was full of remorse. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But that wasn't enough for him to repent. Rather, Judas went then and hung himself. I'm not making a statement about <clears throat> suicide. <clears throat> However, I don't think we want to walk away from this statement, and that is, Satan is the one who seeks to destroy, and he seeks to use death as a means of fear. Um, I want to mention where I have spoken by Jeremiah the prophet down there, and not ignore this, because um, someone may have a question on it. Literally, the, the, the passage that's being quoted here about the field of blood is um, from Zechariah the prophet, not Jeremiah. Um, there is a lot of debate on why it says Jeremiah, not Zechariah. Um, the, the prophets being um, generally um, referred to from Jeremiah being the, the primary of the major prophets. I'm, again, not making a stand on it, other than just to state that we understand that this, um, this quote that is coming um, about the 30 pieces of silver and buying the potter's field actually comes from the prophet Zechariah not the prophet Jeremiah, okay? So, but note then, the betrayer. He made a decision to betray. And then ultimately there was a consequence, and the consequence was his destruction. Now, the first thing we see is this physical destruction. We know, and we're not going to talk about it today, but Jesus says that he is a, the son of perdition, which means that there was also then eternal condemnation, which we'll talk about in a moment. But there is this second individual, Peter, who is in the same passage, right? And it's easy for us to be self-righteous. We tend to want to wanna do that. Um, we like to compare ourselves with multiple other people. Um, so Judas is a, is a great one to compare ourselves to. At least I'm not a Judas. Well, what's the difference between denying and betraying. As we're going to see, Jesus says that he will deny anyone who denies him. 
So what's the difference between Peter and Judas? In Luke 22, we read regarding Peter says, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But then he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me, before you will deny three times that you know me. We're not going to go into the rest of the story. <clears throat> um, you know that, and we'll be going through the rest of the book of John as we come. But that night, so again, for those who are new here, you got to think concept of uh, the Jewish day. Jewish day begins at sundown. So this day actually would go then to the next day at sundown. So um, so from our perspective, um, midnight changes that day. But for, for them, it's all on the same day. So Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times this very day. And so, um, but note what he says to, to, to Peter, which should have got Peter's um, attention here. And that is, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. And apparently, even though Jesus says he's prayed for him, he gave Satan permission to trouble him, to test him. And he also knows, even though that he prays that his faith would not fail, that when you have returned to me, which means that Peter's going to what? He's going to fall. He even tells him that three times you're going to deny me. Strengthen your brethren. Peter, Satan wants to mess with you. Think Job. Job before, or Satan comes before the throne of God. God gives Satan permission to try, to trouble Job. He gives him limitations, but he still gives him permission to do so. And in that, Job's pride is boiled up and revealed. And God himself comes at the end of the book of Job to scoop off the dross and to refine him as in a refiner's fire. The same thing is going to happen for Peter. This is a refining moment. Peter's going to learn um, something about himself that's not going to be very pleasant to learn. But do you know, our God desires more for us than we desire for ourselves. It is God's desire for us that we be conformed to the image of Christ. We'll talk about that again very quickly in a moment. Matthew 10, verse 24 to 33. It's a longer passage. Really, the end part is what we're going to, is the key, but the context is important. So I want to read it all. And I, I got words there colored and stuff. And so I put it up here so you can see it. So pay attention as we come along. It says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of the household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be made known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach in the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him 
who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father, who is in heaven. Three times, Jesus states to them, do not fear. Do not fear who? Do not fear men. Why is it that we become yellow belly chicken livers when we have the opportunity to share testimony about Jesus Christ? Boil it all down. It's fear. We fear man more than we fear God. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is a big deal. <clears throat> Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess them before my father. Whoever denies me before men, I'm going to deny them before my father. In Romans chapter 10, I don't have the verse here, but if you remember right, when it talks about that for salvation, it's believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus. That if you really believe in your heart that Jesus is God, that he was um, that he died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead, then ultimately it's going to come out of your mouth. Sadly, in contemporary Christendom, at least in um, Americana Christendom, we have equated Romans 10 with that confession of the mouth with the sinner's prayer. And that takes up the place just of the there are fathers in the Hail Marys on, in the Catholic side. You are not saved by saying a sinner's prayer. If your heart wasn't really in it, if you really were selfish and looking only for fire escape, then you need to ask, because if there's been no change in your life afterwards, you got to ask yourself, did you really fully commit yourself to Jesus Christ? I know that doesn't sound very appealing and very exciting, but again, as I mentioned yesterday in the memorial service, the reality is that at that memorial service, every single one of us is going to have one one day. And at that point, it's too late to make sure you got it right. It's important for us to make sure we have it right. Do not fear men, but rather fear God. Now, in this application-wise, then, we have two things that I want to kind of very quickly peek at. And there's the predestination for four dollars. Where did that come from? Well, Judas, his betrayal. Peter, his denial. Did they have options or was this written in the book? Was this something that God had foreordained before the foundations of the world? And they really didn't have an option to do this. How does this all play out? Romans chapter 9 talks about, and you can go look at that a little bit later, but talks about um, Pharaoh and that God had uh, chosen Pharaoh 
for the very purpose. And we're told back in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but we're also told that Yahweh hardened his heart. Pharaoh would do what God had determined before him that he would do. Just keep it there for a moment, because we're going to talk about the second side for knowledge in a moment. But Satan had a, or Satan, Pharaoh had a role to play, and he played it. And yet, when Moses came, Yahweh was telling him that he was doing these um, plagues, and he was doing these signs and wonders in order that Pharaoh would know that he was Yahweh, in order that Egypt would know that he was Yahweh, in order that Israel would know that he was Yahweh, in order that the whole world would know that he was Yahweh. So in the, the same time that's playing out, Yahweh still is <clears throat> giving a testimony. Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs 16, verse 4. Proverbs 16, verse 4. It's a very concise verse. Um, again, one that we would sit there and say, oh, how do I deal with this? And there are some things in God's word that I don't feel like I've got an answer. I don't have to give you an answer for, or I don't have to answer to myself for. How's that? Because I don't know necessarily how they all play together, but I'm not God, and I'm, and I'm content with that. Proverbs 16, verse 4. Yahweh has made all for himself. Yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Yahweh has made all for himself, even the wicked for the day of doom. Um, and so for those who believe um, in total predestination, um, it's hard for me when they say, but they don't believe in double predestination. You have to believe in double predestination. If you believe in nothing but predestination, then you have to believe in double predestination. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, that means if if only the people who God predestines to be saved can be saved, then God has predestined the rest to be condemned. There's there's no other way to, to look at that. Because if man cannot get saved apart from God's actual doing something inside of him, um, then the ones that God chooses not to do that for, he has chosen otherwise. So, so struggle with that a little bit. Um, predestination is a, is a real concept for ordination, for ordination, ordaining something ahead of time is very real. And God as a sovereign God, the only one and true God, he's sovereign. He's the creator. He rules over all things. He reserves the right to do whatever he chooses to do. But there is the concept as well in God's word of foreknowledge. And so again, turn in your Bible to first Peter chapter two, or sorry, first Peter one, verse two, first Peter one, This is kind of fun doing it this way again, you know, negative kind of fun. I'm not hearing all the pages flip, so I'm hoping you're you're going there. And I don't know when you got there or not. So um first Peter one, beginning at verse two, says that we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sacrifice in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Note what Peter states, that those who are elect, quote unquote, are elect according to foreknowledge. So God foreknew in some manner what would happen and then elect them. 
Now, again, I'm not trying to minimize and, and water down election. But this is the word of God. And we're told this very clearly. So there is a relationship that's going on here between God's foreordination and his foreknowledge. Romans 8, 29. We'll start it in uh, Romans 8, 28 for context. So you can go there with me. And it's a passage, again, that probably is familiar um, to you. Romans 8, 28. Much better. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you see a, a relationship there in Romans 8 um, between predestination and foreknowledge? That God, first of all, foreknew, and then he predestined. But we're given the purpose of God in that predestination, that foreordination. We were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so God, knowing ahead of time how it was all going to play out, Jesus was going to come, the testimony of, of Christ would go forth, that God's desire for those who accept him, accept Christ as their Savior, God's purpose, his desire for them is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we're told in Philippians chapter 1, he who began the good work in you will continue to perform it to the day of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, it's he who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So again, if it is God's predetermined plan and purpose for those who believe by foreknowledge, to be conformed to the image of his son, and he is the one who's working in us then afterwards, then there ought to be then something in us that's going to be different than what it was before. And that leads us into the the second of these applications that I want to talk about, and that is remorse versus repentance. You see the passage on the screen there from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We talked about this um, a year and a half ago when we are going through 2 Corinthians. Where Paul writes, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow, these are all the same words in Greek, sorry, sorrow, led to repentance, metanoia. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us and nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Note the difference between remorse and repentance. It's the difference between Judas and Peter. The difference between Judas and the rest of the disciples. Judas hadn't committed himself to the ministry of Christ 
if you remember Jesus's um, parable of the sower and the seed, there was a seed that went onto the rocky or the um, the the roadway, and and the birds of the air plucked it up right away. But then there were some that went into the hard rocky soil, right, and it quickly vanished away. And then some went into the the uh, where the thistles were and the cares of the world, um, and and desire the lights of the world came up and choked it out. And then finally there was the good soil that produced fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. And so apparently Judas was either rocky soil or thorny soil, probably thorny soil. And he was choked out. He never was committed to Christ. And so it didn't produce anything in him. The very first fruit of accepting what Jesus has done for you is going to be repentance. It's when your worldly sorrow, I regret, I, re, I have remorse over things I've done because of the consequences that it has brought me, but I'm not willing to change. I'm not willing to, to commit my life to something different. I just don't like what where this has brought me into repentance. And remember the word for repentance that Jesus and John and Peter and Paul all declared as the Greek word metanoia, change the way you think. You have to change the way you think. That's what it's all about. And so remorse then into repentance. So um, the failure of man, this leads us into repentance. But quickly at the end, again, the exciting part is we see the faithfulness of God that is juxtaposed with this failure um, that we see from Judas and the failure we see from Peter. John 13, at the very end of the chapter, we read, so when he had gone out, that is um, Judas, Jesus said, now, and the Greek word is noon, meaning at this moment, from this point on, the son of man is glorified. Isn't that something to think about? His glorification began when the betrayer went to betray. How do you consider persecution in your life? Does it excite you? But when people turn against you and you have to make a stand for Christ, that's when ultimate glorification is revealed. For us to glorify the Father and to glorify the Son. Jesus said, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Jesus loved them to the very end. Again, this is the, the same word that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he says, it is finished. Tetelestai comes from the word teleo or telos. It is completed. It is finished. And so the word tello, which is behind the scenes, um, the origins of the word, literally talks about a goal or um, where you are heading. And so the idea of then of teleo and telos is reaching that mark, that you have done that. And so that's what Jesus talks about here, that in this passage in John 13, that what we're going to see and then all the way through, is we're going to see him reach 
the ultimate goal, the ultimate mark of agapao love, selfless, self-sacrificing love for us. And it's going to result in his glorification, in his being lifted up. And I want to submit to you the same thing plays out for you and I. When we choose to suffer for the name of Christ, not bringing it on ourselves, but if we suffer because of the name of Christ, that ultimately we will receive the glory that God has given to us. Do you remember back in Romans 8 when we read that? It says, to whom he, um, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. That God's ultimate goal for us is for us to be glorified in him. And he states this back in Romans 8, in the past tense, we already are. If you are in Christ, it's already a done deal. So, back to Matthew 10, with the denying him, don't live in fear. The world right now is trying to to get us to fear, fear death. Don't fear death. It's a portal into his presence. The worst thing the world thinks they can do to me is the best thing they can do to me. I must seek to live for him. I must seek to give him glory. And in the end, he will glorify me. Secondly, then, in this faithfulness, we we focus on this passage many times as believers. But note, I mean, this is just a two verses kind of thrown in the middle of of a context of people denying him and betraying him and, and not getting it. But Jesus says in the midst of this, then a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How? As I have loved you, that you also love one another by this. All will know that you are my disciples have love for one another. What is he telling them? Manifest your love for one another. People will know that you really know Jesus when they see Jesus exuding from your life. Well, how do they see Jesus exuding from your life? Well, Jesus already told us, when you serve one another, that's the whole idea. When you are willing to take off your royal vestures and to humble yourself and to be the servant for other people, when you are willing to put yourself at risk for the good of someone else, Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also in the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and despise your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemy. This love isn't then just toward the brethren which is what First John 3, you can read the passage, what it's all about and how we love um, meeting needs. But our love, exuding the love of Christ, then goes to even loving those who are our enemies. And so as we saw last week, um, Chuck shared even at the morning watch that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that God demonstrated his love for us. While we were his enemies, while we were enmity with him, he loved us. 
when he was on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, in the end, on a scale of 1 to 10, how faithful to Christ are you? Do you deny him or betray him by your words and actions? If you do, does it bother you? And then using Jesus' litmus test, would, quote, all know that you are his disciple by your love for others? If not, clearly there's a need to what? Not be remorseful, but to be repentant. To confess before the Lord that there are areas in your life in which you are weak and that you need a strength. If it's a matter of salvation, that you call on his name and be saved. If it's a matter of just pure forgiveness for your sinful life, that you do that as well. But that the goal then is to move forward in Christ, living a life in which he is abiding in you and presiding through you. Is there then a need to change the way you think, metanoia, and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. You alone are God most high. And I am so grateful, Lord, for how you have um, given us your word. I'm grateful how you've given us your your testimony, your example um, in loving um, your disciples, including us. We'll see that. I know, Lord, as we get to John 17, but Lord, you were even thinking about me at that time. It's just so mind-boggling to me. And how many times I have failed you. I have walked away. I've denied you by my my words or by my actions. And yet you have never ceased to be faithful to me. I praise you for that, Lord. Even when I am faithless, you remain faithful. Be glorified, Father, in our assembly. In Christ's name, amen.